Well, I'm glad to be here. I hope you are too. Um, I'm excited. We are only one week away from being done with the community Bible experience. I'm not excited because we're going to be done in a week. I'm excited because look at what we've done in seven weeks so far and about to be, have done in eight weeks. We will have read the New Testament in eight weeks as a people. Now, perhaps you're behind. That's okay. You can still keep going. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're behind in reading, uh, as we've been doing this all together, just keep going. Because think of the difference uh, if somebody says, oh, what were you doing in church recently? Every so often I get that question. Granted, I'm a pastor, so I get that a lot. But you can come to, somebody will say, oh, what are you doing in church recently? What's the pastor teaching about? Anything like that. Oh, we were reading the New Testament together. Did you finish? No. Or... Yeah, it just took me an extra two weeks or something like that. Or just say, yeah, because you took an extra two weeks and I never have to know that it took an extra two weeks. You can leave out that information. So if you're behind, don't worry. Just keep going. You'll feel much better having accomplished it than having gotten so close. It's been fun. I keep hearing good things from your groups. Uh, I will have more information next week about what to do after this with your groups. Uh, but I will tell you this. At some point, you should probably bake a cake or something and celebrate together and have some fellowship with your small group. Figure it out or do some service together or both. Do some service and then make a cake afterwards or make a cake for our small group as your service, whatever you want to do. <laughs> you really don't have to do that. Uh, you, part of the reading over this last week, if you've been keeping up, is the book of John. Um, and in the, the book of John is, is one of those that people either love it or they're like, okay, that's nice. You know, but people that love it, I mean, a lot of people, you ask, what's your favorite Bible verse? And something's probably going to be out of John for an awful lot of people, right? It's the thing that gets held up at football games, John 3.16. That's one of the, the, the most popular, most known verses. Most of you probably know it, or at least in part know that verse. John looks different, though, than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are typically called the synoptic Gospels. They see with one eye is what that means. They look very similar. Mark seems to be kind of the foundation of those other two. They're not exactly the same, but they have a lot of parallels between them. John looks totally different compared to those. And so people have made all kinds of different assessments about John based on that. They've said, well, it's the book of love. And if you read all of John's writings, you know, the letters and the book, yeah, love is a prominent theme. So John's just this gospel of love. Or John doesn't look very Jewish compared to the others. People have said for years, it's a Greek gospel. The others are very Jewish. It looks very Greek. But as it turns out, uh, modern scholarship has really come around and said, no, in fact, it's quite Jewish. And people, as they look at John, they realize it's quite robust. It's quite grounded. It's not just fluffy love. It's God's uh, spelling out what love looks like through Jesus Christ very clearly. There's a lot to it. It's incredibly, it's thoroughly Jewish in the way it approaches things. And if you read the introduction in the community Bible experience, if you're following along that way, great information in there. But if you notice, the number seven is in there a lot. The days of creation are kind of outlined in that way. Seven being the number of perfection. Uh, even to the point that uh, it's, it's trying to highlight when is Jesus in the tomb. He literally takes a Sabbath. On the seventh day, that's when he's resting in the tomb. And what happens on the next day, the first day of the week? Boom, new creation. John is outlining things that way. So you're supposed to catch these big things. And it's very Jewish because if you look at the three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the temple incident, the for Jesus happens at towards the end of the story or as, as things are kind of ramping up 
in John, it's happening at the beginning. That's not because he's uh, taking it out of order. He's just starting his telling of the story from a different spot. But that incident is still very important. And it's the temple, for goodness sakes. You can't get much more Jewish than that in this. John is easily divided into two sections. There's books 1 through 12, which are typically known as the book of signs, where Jesus is raising Lazarus or turning water into wine, or you see what he can do. The second half of the book, John 13 through 20, uh, I'll use the, it's, it's the passion is really what it is, but uh, New Testament scholar Gary Burge, I think he puts it well, he says the book of signs and the book of glory is what you see in that second half. And, and John has a lot, if you're looking at the red letter edition, there's an awful lot of red letter in John. Jesus talks a lot through the gospel. He's presenting himself throughout that gospel. Again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they, look, uh, they have a lot of what you might call moral teaching, where Jesus kind of puts things out there like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but uh, scholar Richard Hayes points out, I want to credit him with the thought, if you look at uh, the book of John, Jesus says, follow my commandments, but he really never outlines what those commandments are in the same way he does in the other books. He's revealing himself in many ways. And again, to to quote Richard Hayes, New Testament scholar, this is important if we're going to understand John. He says, Jesus is represented in John, not as a teacher, but as a relentless revealer of a single metaphysical secret. Don't get lost in those words. Here's what's revealed, that Jesus himself is the one who has come from God to bring life. That's who Jesus is showing himself to be throughout the whole gospel. John's letting him speak to let us know who he is. John takes an even bigger view. If you look at the very beginning of his gospel, he goes all the way back to creation, or at least he kind of parodies creation, mimics it in his telling of the story of Jesus. Back in Genesis 1, we read that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void, formless and void. Darkness was over it. And what happens? Let there be light. And God created each day. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. He proclaims. And then he takes rest. But what happens very shortly after all that good creation is created? Sin enters the picture to threaten, to attack, to pervert, to mess up, to vandalize that good creation. And what's God's solution? John tells us. He puts it in terms of creation. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. It says, in Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let there be light. And there was Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings life to that which is threatened by sin, by the power of evil. Light comes into the world, not to dim darkness, but to eliminate it, to get rid of it altogether. That's why Jesus comes. That's the solution God brings for his good creation to put it back on track. You can see the themes in John of things like forgiveness, of restoration, of new life and new creation. And very importantly, from beginning to end, Jesus is modeling for us what it means to do one thing. Follow me. 
That's the call of the disciples from the beginning. Jesus says, follow me. That's the call that we're going to see at the very end. We're going to look at John 21 in a little bit, but you need, we need to use two other verses to get there. John 21 in a little bit, where Jesus reiterates to Peter, follow me. And in the midst of that, he says, let me show you what you're following. Let me show you who I am. Let me show you what God is up to. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, that's the call. Disciples, we follow. Now, looking at the book of John, the hinge of the book, I said it's divided into two parts easily. The hinge is chapter 13. And when you get into chapter 13, uh, Jesus has shown different signs of who he is and illustrated why he's here. But at this point, then he sits down with the disciples. This is the, the Maundy Thursday moment that we recognize later this week in Holy Week. Jesus comes and he wraps a towel around his waist and he washes his disciples' feet. This is a rather shocking moment. That's slave work. That's not the work of the rabbi or the teacher. But he does this. He washes their feet. And Peter, in characteristic Peter fashion, he stands up and he says, No way. You shouldn't be doing this. No way. Wash all of me, Jesus. And Jesus says, You're clean. You just need your feet washed. Then he shocks them again. He says, Also, one of you 12 people is going to betray me and hand me over. This of course, disturbs them greatly. Who's it going to be? They wonder. And then chapter 13 is really pivotal because then he predicts that Peter is going to deny him in his most dire hour. And so we read from chapter 13, verse 34. This is one of those key things that Jesus says, the the new command I give you. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And here's a key statement. I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Unbelievable, isn't it? These guys have given up their lives. One of them is going to betray Jesus. And then Peter, the leader of the pack, the one who says, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus' response is, actually, you're going to deny me three times. By tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. Now, that comes to bear in Peter's life. And we can only imagine how it felt because in chapter 18, by this point, Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial. Peter's denied him the first time. And in chapter 18, 25, it says, Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. Jesus is inside being tried by the high priest. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, my job isn't to speculate. My job is to look at the text and tell us what it says. That's your job as well if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But... We don't have to step too far out on a limb here and and just say if there was a, a, 
spectrum of does this make Peter feel good or does this make Peter feel bad when this moment happens? I don't think it's walking too far out to say this did not make him feel good. To betray Jesus like this, he felt bad. Probably really bad. This is probably one of those moments where even though he felt very insecure in what was going on, Jesus had been arrested. Who knows what's going to happen to the rest of the disciples? Are they too going to be arrested? Is it going to go bad for them? This is probably one of those moments where the cost didn't seem to outweigh the benefit when it came down to it. To stay safe didn't actually outweigh the betrayal and the feeling of betrayal. How awful it must have felt for Peter to do that. We have a kind of a We'll just call it a ridiculous term that we use, uh, I think, in our day and age for when somebody betrays us, that they threw you under the bus. What a weird phrase. Uh, it's, it's far too graphic and, and unfortunate, I think. Basically, betrayal, right? But it's happened probably in some small or big way to most all of us. And we maybe are, have been on the other end of it, too, is my guess, at one point or another. We didn't support somebody when we said we would. We pledged and we didn't give into the pledge. Um, or somebody said, I've got your back, and they didn't, right? Whether it's a small or a big way. Maybe it was just minor inconvenience. Maybe it was giant hurt that it caused. But what's your reaction when that kind of thing happens? When somebody betrays you, it hurts. And frankly, it hurts the person who betrays as well, because that's never something somebody wears as a badge of honor. They don't go out and say, oh, I did these six good things. Also, I betrayed somebody the other day. Like, that's just not something we say or do. It's not something that we're proud of, to betray somebody else. It's not something that feels good for us. And particularly, it makes things tense in relationships when we care about somebody else uh, or, or a workplace or whatever it is. What's your response when these kinds of things happen? Somebody betrays us. The betrayal had already gone on, let's just be clear. Not just with Peter. God sent his son Jesus Christ because we had already betrayed him, or we would betray him with sin. And he sent his son while we were still betraying him, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Thanks be to God that that the reaction that you and I might have in those cases, you know, I'm done with you, I'm walking away from this. God didn't do that with us. When things got darkest, what did he do? He sent in his light. I'm going to give you life where death is all around. And what's really remarkable is we get this episode at the very end of the Gospel of John that is so telling of what it means when Jesus says, follow me. He illustrates for us forgiveness. He illustrates for us the way forward when he reinstates Peter to leadership. And that's what I want to look at right now, which is John 21. Just 15 through 19. So Jesus has already appeared to the disciples by this point. It's a lot to put on the screen, so if you, you can follow along here on your phone if you have that. Jesus has already revealed himself to his disciples. There appears that there's some level of forgiveness that's probably already gone on when he's, he said peace to them. Um, and he's come and he's made breakfast and sat on the beach with them this morning after rising from the dead. And it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. A couple just quick notes on on the actual text, and then I'll make just two short points. Uh, The first is, if you do any study of this passage, uh, some will point out that there are two different words for love used in the passage. Um, In Greek, there are a few different words that that are out there for love. The two used here, agape and philos, are the two, and often people will say, well, agape is the sort of heavenly love or that unconditional type love, and philos is brotherly love, like Philadelphia. Uh, That's where that comes from. Uh, It's not so clear. Uh, in some spots in the New Testament, that there's such a distinction. Love just means love, to will the good for another person, because you will the good for another person, not to get anything out of it. They both interchangeably use both phrases here in this passage. Um, The second thing to note about this is that it's interesting, the first question, Peter almost sort of uh, ignores it in a sense, but Simon, do you love me more than these? It's not entirely clear what these is in the statement. They've been fishing. Is it fishing equipment? Is it his vocation? Is it the other disciples? And and those are probably good questions for all of us that Jesus could ask. Hey, do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than the one you're married to or your kids or whatever it is? That's really the question. Do you love me most? That's what he's getting at in this question. So it's, it's love. Do you will the good for me, not for any benefit you get? And do you love me more than anything else? Do you love me, Peter? I mean, Peter is hurt on that third one. Can you imagine, though? I think you can't ignore the fact that we read the three times that Peter denies Jesus, and then the rooster crows. Can you imagine the same feeling is kind of going on for Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter is hurt. Can't you kind of feel the rooster crowing at that point? Oh, oh. Do I love you that much? And I think what Jesus is doing is so remarkable here. It looks like there's some forgiveness that's already been offered by Jesus to the disciples in general before this. But here, people say that Peter's being reinstated to leadership over the apostles, but I think Jesus is actually addressing the elephant in the room. The denial itself. And he's doing it in a very interesting and creative way, but not ignoring the reality. I think Peter is being offered an olive branch. By Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Oh, I get it. I denied you three times. Let's make peace, Peter. I know what happened. I forgive you. Let's make peace. But I don't think Jesus, and he's acknowledging the issue, I think, by, by saying it three times. I think that's why the three times is occurring. I think we're not supposed to miss that. He's acknowledging the issue. But he doesn't just make peace and then say, okay, now let's go about our ways. I think what he does also is he's saying, let's restore this relationship. Do you love me, Peter? You've made this commitment. Do you love me? Let's walk forward together. 
That's the feed my sheep. Let's walk forward. We're, we're in this together, Peter. I'm giving you this commission. Feed my sheep. The past, in this case, becomes the foundation. I'm thankful that we read in Scripture, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, Jesus, or God, uh, puts our sin behind us, not counting it against us. I don't know that it says he forgets it. He doesn't count it against us. It, frankly, is part of what makes us who we are. I think God will sort that out, but it makes us who we are. Even this, this makes the relationship what it is, for better or worse. And Jesus says, now let's stand on that as the foundation. I'm not counting this against you. We know what happened, though. Let's move forward. That's how forgiveness works. Let's move forward at this point. Because you can think in your own life, if you think of a memory, good or bad, you know those really amazing or those really horrible moments that have happened in your life that have shaped you. You, you talk to somebody or somebody talked to you who you really had such regard for and they gave you the words that were just right and that's implanted in your memory. Or something terrible happened and that shaped who you are and the decisions that you make. Those things make you, even if you've been able to forgive somebody, if it was a bad thing. They've made you who you are. But we can be unburdened from those with forgiveness. We can step on them and move forward from those moments, not living in the past, not being uh, held down by those. This is one of those moments, though, for Peter. A bad moment. He denied Jesus three times in Jesus' most dire hour. And Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Rooster crow, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter, we're moving forward. Do you think it was easy for Peter to forget this moment and his mission? He did struggle a little bit later, but he didn't forget the mission. He faltered, but he didn't forget the mission. This is implanted into him at this point. Jesus offers an olive branch. He says, let's restore this thing. Let's move forward. You've got a mission. Let's go forward. Feed my sheep. How liberating this probably was for Peter. I think of, of, and John tells a similar story, but in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at the home of Simon, a Pharisee. He's shown almost no hospitality except a woman comes in and washes his feet with her tears. Do you remember this story? Highly criticized for this. And Jesus says, Simon, you didn't wash my feet at all. You've barely shown me an ounce of hospitality. She came in and she hasn't stopped, stopped paying attention to me. What she does will be remembered. And then he tells this parable. And I'll put it in modern terms. He says, imagine if you will, somebody owes, uh, they have a debt to a credit card company of $50,000. Somebody else has 50 and they're both written off. Who's more thankful? So is this woman. Peter just had a big debt written off. He's not going to easily let this go. Not easily going to forget this mission forward at this point. Two things I want to say about forgiveness and following then. First, first of all, then, and we see this here with Peter. Forgiveness is freedom. Particularly forgiveness that to follow Jesus Christ, to be forgiven, we're unburdened at this point by the past. Peter was guilty. Peter, Peter might have been forgiven, but this was an elephant in the room. He was held down by this weight. Now all of a sudden you can see, gone. We have a mission, Peter. Let's move forward. It's lifted from him. He's free. And that's exactly what God is trying to do with us in Jesus Christ. 
is lift the burden of sin off of us. Take off of us guilt, pain, sin, and shame and give us freedom in Christ. Forgiveness is freedom. When we have those moments when we're estranged with others, whether it's friends, family, whatever, co-workers, it's much easier to move away from people at that point. Man, this is so hard. I don't think uh, it's going to be easy to repair this. I'm going to move away. I was given advice years ago that keeps playing out well. In those cases, move towards them, I was told. Not away. And you know what? That works. You move towards somebody. Yeah, it won't be a, a, a shoe in every time. Sometimes it doesn't work, but that works. But sometimes we do that with God. God, the, the guilt, the sin, the shame, the things that I've done wrong probably are so far removed from you that I, it doesn't even make any difference. I shouldn't even come. But in the worst hour, at the worst time, when we were as far as we could possibly be, that's when Jesus sent, was sent into the world to kill the darkness, to give us life. We're never too far. Forgiveness is freedom. Second thing, following Jesus is the only way to that f- true freedom. Jesus makes a whole lot of bold statements in the book of John. Peter is charged with feeding the sheep. And if you look at what Jesus is providing as the food for that sheep, you can see that he says a whole lot of things uh, that are just plain bold. He says, hey, by the way, your ancestors were offered manna when they were wandering in the desert. And you know what happened? They still died. God's grace was given to them and they still died in the desert. He says, oh, by the way, I'm the bread of life. What? That's a big statement. I'm the bread of life. He makes these seven I am statements. Not only that, he says, I'm the light of the world. Not only that, he says, I'm the door to the sheep uh, for the sheepfold. I had it written down better here. I'm the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. There is no life without being connected to me. All of them equally bold statements. You and I can go to an all-you-can-eat buffet every day for the rest of our lives, and you know what? We're still going to die. It won't keep us alive forever. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the thing that gives you life that nothing else can provide. You can go get the best advice from the best gurus out there, and you know what? You're still not going to be saved. Jesus says, I'm the only thing that does that. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one that cares more than anybody and actually can deliver the salvation for you. Jesus says, you might be able to find things that give you life, but if you're not connected to me, you're going to end up like the kindling that's on the ground around the the vine. It's not even good for making s'mores. Jesus' claims are bold. Let us not miss that. In the book of John, this is food for life. People try and water them down at every turn. I hear it on a regular basis. Jesus is a way, a truth, a life, someone will want to say. Oh, there are many ways that you can go. Jesus makes none of those claims. He says, I'm the only one. I'm it. There is no other way. There's a narrow road and a narrow gate. That's the entrance. They're bold claims. He didn't intend them to be any less than bold claims about our salvation. And you see this rising up out of the book of John. This is not shallow, fluffy love in the book of John. This is not just vague, abstract thoughts about God totally separated from reality. 
I'm so thankful that John allows Jesus to reveal himself for us in the pages of his gospel that we can see he truly is the bread of life. He truly is the light of the world. And we get in this last moment with Peter, don't we get this concrete moment of God's cosmic vision for you and me? Peter, I forgive you. And even after telling Peter, you know what? The end is not going to be as you predicted. He's, he's predicting that he's going to be a martyr, which is what happens to Peter. Because you follow me. But he says, follow me. I'm the only thing that can take care of you through thick and thin, through everything. Peter, I forgive you. Follow me. Feed my sheep. And the same call goes for us. Follow me, Jesus says. I'm the bread of life. I want to pray. And if this morning that uh, you have chosen to follow Jesus, I want you to take this time to to make it one of those moments where you say, okay, what does this mean to follow you better this week? And if you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never said, I want to follow you, maybe consider it. Take the time even to say yes to Jesus right now. But let's join together in prayer as we consider the one who is the bread of life, who is the light of the world, who gives us life where no one else can. Father, we come to you today. And we know the simple call, and we know that it asks an awful lot of us. In fact, it asks everything of us when you say, follow me. For Peter, he gave his life. In fact, for most of the disciples, they did. We know that might not be the case, that we might not be martyred, but God, you ask us to give our lives for you even now. To recognize that you are the giver of all good things, that all that we possess in this life is because we have your grace on us even when we don't recognize it. And so, Father, for those of us who have said yes to you and who have said, yes, I will follow you this morning, may your spirit work on us and come right inside of us and tell us, affirm where we're following you and say, okay, now here, this week, today, this is how I call you further so you can draw closer. And Father, for those of us in the room who have never said yes to you, who have never committed to follow you. May your spirit come right inside and call us into your very presence right now. God, you have all power to save us. In fact, you've done so on the cross. So this morning we call on you to reveal your salvation to us and draw us into your presence. That we are encouraged to go forward that we are made more like your son, Jesus Christ, at every turn. That we follow your command to love one another as you have loved us. God, we will your good in this place, in the lives of those in this room. May we find life in you and only in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.